Well, if you've been with us, you know we're going through the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. We were there last week, and we're going to finish that up this week. I would say a few things in the introduction. First of all, we know that the first part of Ephesians is a prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer, a psalm of praise unto God. It starts in verse 3. In verses 3 through 14, we have one continuous sentence written in the original language. It's without period, without punctuation. It continues through one thought of the Apostle Paul. And in this one sentence, about 217 words written by the Apostle. Uh, he uh, Suffice it to say he might have failed English class. But, uh, but he, he does that. He does it sometimes in his writing. He does it because he's overwhelmed. With the thoughts of who God is, it, it happens most uh, most of the time when he when he is caught up in thoughts of God, then his sentences tend to run long. Okay, like some of my sermons tend to run long when you get caught up in in thoughts of who God is, and so he divides his psalm. In, in, in verse 3, you have a, a, a kind of a catch-all verse, remember? It, it's the broad overstatement. It's what, it's what uh, the Hebrew people would have called a Baruch, a, a psalm of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He could have ended it there. He, he said, generally, or Overview-wise, everything he's going to say in verses 4 through 14. But 4 through 14 are simply the expounding, the expansion of what he says in short form in verse 3. So then in verses 4 through 6, he covers the architect of our salvation, God the Father. This is also not only just a psalm, but it's a psalm divided in three sections. Those three sections, each representing a member, a person in the Godhead. The first, God the Father, verses 4 through 6. Then, verses 7 through, uh, 7 through 12 cover Jesus Christ. We have the architect of our salvation, the planner, the one who did it before the foundation of the world, God the Father. The one who actually brings the plan into action, Jesus Christ. He's the one who does what the architect planned. He's the builder. He's, he's the foundation. He's the cornerstone of our salvation. And then in verses 13 and 14, we finish this psalm of praise speaking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, the third person of the Trinity. And He is the one who then applies. He, he, he gives over the keys to the house. In a sense, it's it's planned by God, the father. It's built. The salvation we have is built by God, the son, and it is given to us in ownership by the Holy Spirit. It becomes ours through the Holy Spirit, we would say. okay? and so you, you might even wonder. I know I have. Maybe you have it, but I have thought before. Why this title? Holy Spirit. That's how it's written in our in our text. Holy Spirit. Sometimes he's referred to simply as the Spirit. And you say, why would you wonder about such a thing? Well, because God is holy. Is not God the Father and God the Son, are they not holy? Sure they are. Certainly they're holy. And, if we're talking about Spirit, 
in the, in the sense of non-material, non-physical, is not God Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all prior to Christ's incarnation. He was not physical either. And so, what is being distinguished? Why would the spirit, why would He be called the Holy Spirit? Seems redundant. And some have even questioned, does he exist? Is he real at all? And I would say, yes, he is. Because there's a key in that word spirit, uh, in the Hebrew, ruah is the name that he is given. In, in the, in, uh, in the, in the Greek, he is given a similar name, and both the Hebrew and the Greek speak to this. This is what they are. Breath. Wind. Breath. Wind. So what's significant about that? Well, if you look back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and you look at the creation of man, you see something very different in the creation of man than you see in any of the other creation. And that is that once Adam was made, he was formed. God the Father, through Christ His Son, breathed into Adam. He didn't do that with cows. He didn't do that with, uh, with snakes. He didn't do that with fish. He did that act with mankind. In this, he separates man from all the other creatures. He doesn't do it with angels. He only does it with man. He breathed. Now you have the question, is that breath like, like that kind of breath? Or is that the Spirit? And I think the answer, or one way we can see the answer, is in John chapter 20. In the upper room, having been crucified, raised from the dead, our Lord met with His men, and He breathed on them, promising them the Holy Spirit. So what I'm telling you, what I'm conjecturing, what I believe the Scripture teaches, is that Adam received the Spirit, the image of God in his creation. And when he falls, he still is very distinct from all the other animals, but he loses, he loses his direct connection with God the Father through his sin. He is cut off from God. And what Jesus is telling us is that through him, in John 20 we see it, the Spirit is now reinvested in us. And we see that fall on the men in Acts chapter 2, right? In Acts, Acts 1, 8, Jesus promised that the Spirit would come to them. And then in Acts 2, they're all gathered around. They've selected the replacement for Judas. They're still gathered there, probably about 120 of them. And then something happens. A sound like a mighty rushing wind came into the room. And flaming tongues appeared over their heads. And they began to speak with various tongues. That is the Spirit of God. He came on them. And and in this text, He is called the Holy Spirit of promise. Do you see that in your text? The Holy Spirit of promise? Now, I said last week, the promise part of this title is that in the Old Covenant, God had promised that His people would have His Spirit in the New Covenant. He promised that in texts like Joel chapter 2. 
and and uh, you know I I had to say this in the elders meeting last Sunday uh, I got punched up a little because we have a difference on this you know and it's okay some of you are different from me on this it's all right uh, one of us is right one of us is wrong and God will tell us one day listen I believe. That the Spirit of God was promised in, in Joel chapter 2. And the fulfillment of Joel 2 and 3 are happening now in the church. We now are a holy nation. We are a royal priesthood. We are the inheritors of the promises of Abraham. We as the church are. And so I see that the promise here of the Spirit has been fulfilled. So we see that this, these two verses are written about the promised Holy Spirit and what He does for us in salvation. And I said last week that there are three things which He does in this text. He saves, He seals, He gives surety, guarantee. He gives guarantee, He gives surety, He gives security, we might say. Okay? And so I want to run through the first two quickly, catch you up to where we are, and then focus on the last one. He saves us. The Holy Spirit of God saves us. Look at verse 13. In Him you also, talking about in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So God works in our salvation through the word of God and the Spirit of God. Have you ever wondered, what is it that makes the Bible so different from all other books? Well, there's several things that I would say. First of all, I would say it is the only book which God himself authors. We, we have no other book which God himself authored. He authored it through his men, through his chosen and holy men, as our children learn in their catechism. Okay? But another thing that separates the word of God is there is no other book that we are promised to receive communication from God through that book. We're not promised to receive communication from God from a book which I write, or you write, or John Piper writes. They may help us. They may aid us. But generally, we can say that God speaks to us through His book, the Bible. It is not, uh, it is not uh, only inspired. It is expired. It is breathed out. Though God may move on our hearts to write a book that is very helpful in explaining some portion of the Scripture or in, in uh, giving detail of how to live a life of practical holiness, those things are needed. But the reality is those books are not breathed out by God. Only the Bible is breathed out by God. Only the Bible contains the promise that the Holy Spirit will take the words of that and implant it in the heart and save a lost man. The Bible is the only book. It is separated from all other books in this way. And we know that it is living and active. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us the Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce even into the very quick of the bone of a man. What that tells me and what that should tell you is that God makes His Word alive. His, His Word is not dead on the page. His word is living. And it is living through the Holy Spirit. 
The same one who breathed it into the men who wrote it on the page is the same one who opens your eyes to understand it, who gives you ears to hear it, who applies it into your heart and you're saved, who, who we might say, uh, who brings you to life. He is the one who brings you to life. The Holy Spirit does that. And so God, first of all, He saves you by His Spirit. You are, uh, you are renewed. You are made alive through His Holy Spirit. So that's the first thing we see. And second in this text, we see that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit as God's possession. If we look at the second part of verse 13, it says... After having believed in Him, you were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance and until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So the first activity of salvation, the second activity of the Holy Spirit in our life is sealing. And we spoke about this seal. The seal comes from the idea of the signet ring of the king. The, one, the, the king had a ring which he placed in hot wax and then which he placed onto any document that he would forward through the kingdom. And that seal did two things. It changed the document, and it sent a message with the document. It changed the document. The document goes from being a piece of paper with words on it to being the message of the king, because the seal is on it. Okay, So it changed it. It put his image on. It put his image on the document. It makes the document official. It makes it irrevocable. This is the word of the king. I also compared it to, uh, to branding with cattle. Branding with cattle. And I gave the example of my younger life when I was able to go and build my uncle's ranch and, and, and participate in some of that. Very little, but some. And I've seen the process. The cow is cut away from the, from the herd, is, is captured and branded with a hot iron in the West. Why? Because it marks that cow as his possession. You can take a tag out of the ear. You can, you can, you can, you know, if a cow gets out of, of the fence and wanders off, a guy could take it in his flock and you could say, well, I got, that's my cow. It's got a white dot on its nose. And that guy said, well, I got a cow with a white dot too. How do you distinguish one cow from the other? Who owns the cow? The brand. Because that brand is seared into the flesh. It changes that cow. That cow now is possessed by that ranch owner. It doesn't belong to anybody else. And so we see that that's the work of the Holy Spirit, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And I would, I would say, I'm going to say a couple other things, but one thing that's very interesting to me is in the book of Revelation, we are told that there are those who are marked with the mark of the beast. And there are those who are marked with the mark of God. They are children of God. And those are distinguishable by number in the book of Revelation. Well, don't get so caught up on the science fiction part of that. Because what's happening in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 is what's happening in Revelation. We are marked, we are branded 777. We, the perfect number, the holy number of God. We belong to God. And there are those in the world today who are marked with the mark of the beast. 666. It's not a computer chip. It, nobody's going to make you walk through Walmart on the body scanner to get food. Don't buy into this science fiction. These are, this is the way God marks sheep from goats. 
This is how they are separated. At the end of time, all of those marked and sealed by the Spirit, under the code name 777, belong to God. And those who are not sealed by the Spirit belong to the mark of the beast. And they are His possession. One is sheep, one is goat. Okay? So, listen, we are already marked. You either belong to Him or you don't. Alright? Sorry to disappoint. (laughs) It doesn't make for great novels and movies. What can I say? But it is, I believe, true. And we see it here in this text. We see it in other texts also. Of the scriptures. So this seal changes not only does it communicate who we belong to, but it changes who we are. So the first thing I would say is it transforms us. We now have the image of God on us. Not just the image in the sense of the original image of God that was on mankind that separated him from the creatures, but now we as his children are separated from other humans because we are in the image of Christ. The seal which He places on us in the Spirit is the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. The new man, as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 5, verse 17. And so, we have this new image on us. When Adam fell into sin, the image of God was lost in one sense, uh, but, but not completely. It was lost. After the fall, humanity was still in the image of God in the sense that He was a reflection of some of the divine attributes. He was a reflection of the... The creature was a reflection of the Creator in that sense. Being in the image of God, the human and the humanity distinguishes it from all other animals. When biologists tell us we're just the highest on the, on the order of development, he doesn't understand the doctrine of creation. We are not another animal in the jungle. We are humans. They are animals. Big difference. Alright? We have the image of God. Animals do not have the image of God. We are distinctively human. And all of us are that. Saved or lost. Okay? But humanity did lose when Adam sinned. And what we lost are, are the holiness and righteousness of God. What we lost in sin and in the fall was the desire to proclaim God's glory across the world and through our lives. We lost that. And sometimes that, that we would call is the moral, theologians would call that the moral attributes. We lost those. We, we are not like Him in that way. But when we come to Christ and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, we are marked again with that part of the image of God which we lost with Adam. You're not only a human, now you are a human in Christ's likeness. You once could not choose to do right, now you have that ability. You can do right, you can obey God, you can follow His law. You once had no desire to be in communion with God, now you commune with Him every day. This is through the seal of the Holy Spirit. In Romans, uh, in Romans Paul says it like this, The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit, right, that we are the children of God. Do you hear that? That's the seal of the Holy Spirit. That's how we are changed when we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And so we have been sealed and we have been changed through this. We are transformed. And it also, the seal sends a message It sends a message to all the world. And that message is that we are authentically God's children. 
we belong to God. Listen, it sends a message to the spiritual realm. The seal of the Holy Spirit, Satan can go so far but no further. We don't belong to him. Satan and his minions have no rule over us. We're free. We are free. And so the seal communicates that. It gives that message to the world. We are being assured by the Holy Spirit. And so having believed, we are now, uh, we are now sealed by His Spirit. There's a divine testimony that's been given to us. Deep in our consciousness, we know if we are the children of God. Now, I'm not saying that you will never have a struggle with, with your salvation, whether you are or are not. When children don't act like their father, they don't have the assurance that their father loves them. The subjective assuredness. assuredness. Do you know what I'm speaking about? You may have struggled with that this morning already. You sinned. You had a horrible attitude in your heart of some kind. And you wonder, how can God love me? When you fa- but isn't that true in all relationships? In your human relationships, is that not true? When you think about your husband or your wife, and you do something that harms them, hurts them, confuses them, is, is mean to them, mean-spirited to them, do you not think, how could they really love me? How could we really still have a relationship? I've failed. I've failed. That feeling of failure. But what I'm saying is, yes, you may have that, but deep inside you know that you are God's child. Even in this moment of uncertainty, practically, relationally, and permanently, you know, I belong to God. Why? Because He, through this seal, the Holy Spirit, communicates with your spirit. There's an indirect testimony of the, of the, of the, of the fact that we are God's children. And so, as we look at this, we see that the seal of the Holy Spirit sets us apart into Christ's likeness. And it sets us apart from the rest of humanity, making us and assuring us of our salvation. Now, we not only have that, but we also have that, we are the, that He is the surety. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. If you look at verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. This is the next part of the text we look at. You know, we, uh, we move from a legal, uh, a legal seal to a down payment. To a down payment. You know, I've, uh, I sold a house for sale by owner. Put the sign up. Uh, two days later, somebody came knocking on the door, wanted to look at the house. They looked at the house. And the lady says, I'm going to get my husband. I, I, we, we really want to buy the house. Will you hold it for us? And that's an awkward position, isn't it? Because this lady's earnest in what she's saying. She, she wants to buy the house. But her husband hadn't come and looked at it. And she said, can you take the sign down? I'm scared somebody else will want it. And what I told her was, sure, I can take the sign down. When you give me X amount of money, that's non-refundable. I take the sign down. What I was asking her for was a guarantee. What I was asking her for is surety. Security against my losses. If I take the sign down, somebody else drives by and says, well, I was going to buy that house, but I guess it's sold. I've lost the opportunity to sell the house, right? So the fact that that's the case, now I've 
taking it off the market means she gives me money. Well, that's a little bit in financial terms of what God is saying to us here. He has given us an inheritance in Christ. He already spoke about it earlier in the text. And now he's saying, not only have I given you an inheritance, but I've given you the surety. I've given you the guarantee. I've given you the forward payment on your eternal inheritance. His name is the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of you. And so, God has given us this uh, internal witness that we have a peace, and we now have a peace of eternity that lives inside of us. It's It's a token payment of the guarantee which He will fulfill in the end. And so we look here and we say, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, they did not have this element of the surety. They didn't have it. This is an element of the New Covenant. The Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament, but He did not live in believers in the Old Testament. But they did have signs in the Old Testament. They had the Passover. They had circumcision. They had the Day of Atonement. They had signs. They had seals. They had promises. Right? And in the New Covenant, we have baptism. We have the Lord's Supper. But we have something far greater than outward signs. We have God Himself living in us. So we say, when, when does eternity begin with the believer? When does eternal life begin? It begins at the moment of conversion. We're not waiting for our life in eternity to begin. It is already in us. It is already living in us. We are already tasting part of the inheritance in this life. Sure, this life is filled with disappointment. It's filled with sin. It's filled with failure. It's filled with imperfection. But yet and still we know in our hearts, because He is there with us, living with us, we know that we have eternity. It is ours. It is guaranteed. It is promised. And so, there are four truths about this in verse 14 that I want us to see. First, I would say God has chosen His people. He has chosen us. What this verse tells us, He has chosen us from all people on the earth who were by nature children of wrath. And in choosing us, He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit against the day of judgment. We are protected. We are shielded from the wrath of God by the Holy Spirit. He passes over us in His judgment because we have the Holy Spirit. We are marked by the Holy Spirit. Second, we see in these verses that God has given His Spirit as not only a seal to protect us, but also... He has given us His Spirit as a down payment, a guarantee of the future inheritance that His children will receive. We will receive eternal life. We have received eternal life. We will receive an eternal inheritance. Third, we see in this passage that God has sealed believers with the Spirit and it is in Christ. I think some of the failure of our modern churches with the Holy Spirit, is we separate Him completely from the Son. The Spirit of God, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit as He is called here, comes to make Christ glorious in our eyes. 
the Spirit's work magnifies Christ. He does not magnify Himself. He magnifies Christ. He reveals to us the precious nature of Jesus Christ. And so when we divorce the two, we make the Holy Spirit a standalone, almost third deity or something. What we do is we divorce Him from what He has given for, for the purpose for which He has given. And that is to magnify Christ. And so He seals us in Christ. He's not out there uh, working on His own and for His own glory. Is for Christ. And finally in this passage we see that God has fulfilled the promise of His Spirit, which He made to His people in the Old Testament. Listen, we can say many things, and there's much more that could be said about these verses. But one thing that we can be certain of, that is God has kept His Word. One of the most... um, Defeating thoughts you will ever have is to begin to think, will God do what He has promised? You want to be discouraged and depressed? Begin to question the, the, the faithfulness of God. You will be discouraged and depressed. And there will be no remedy. But when you look through the Scripture, what you see is that God never lies. That God never goes back on His Word. That God always keeps His promise. And so verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. If nothing else is gained from them in these two weeks of study, I want you to gain that God keeps His Word. He promised to the Old Testament saints that He would give His Spirit, and He has delivered by giving His Spirit to the church. And finally, we can say this. We have been saved. We have been sealed We've been given the assurance or the surety of the Holy Spirit all to the praise of God's glorious grace. When you look at the end of verse 14, to the praise of His glory. The last words of this uh, psalm that, that David is writing here, the last words, are no different than those last words which he wrote in the other sections. If you go back and look at verses 4 through 6, what does he say? All that God the Father has done, He has done to the praise of His glorious grace. If you go back and you look and you, and you examine verses, uh, verse 12, the end of the section on the sun, what does He say? To the praise of His glory. And verse 14, He says the Spirit has been given as, as our guarantee, as our seal, to the praise of God's glory. It's all for the praise of God and His glory. When I look at uh, this passage, I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In closing, I would just have you turn there. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaking about how we are all being brought into unity with Christ. Speaking about the eternal kingdom. He says this in verse uh, 24. Excuse me, we start in verse 23. But each in his own order, speaking about the resurrections. Speaking about the resurrection in Christ. Christ, the first fruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end 
when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But when it says all things are in subjection, it is plain that the one who is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. Listen to this in verse 28. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to God who put all things in subjection under Him. That God may be all in all. What Paul says consistently and what we should all understand clearly is that everything that is being done is being done so that God might be praised. So that God's glory might be revealed. So that God might be all in all. So, as he closes out this psalm of praise to God, church, listen, you should be encouraged because God the Father has planned your salvation before time began. God the Son, incarnated in flesh, came, dwelled among His people, died and was resurrected for your salvation. And the Holy Spirit of God brings that salvation to you, implants it in your heart, makes you alive through belief in Him, and seals you and gives you a guarantee. God has not failed. That's what Paul said. God has not failed. Why? Because God is all in all. Listen, your salvation, my salvation, are not about us primarily. It is about God. It is not about how important we are. It is about God and His glory. Oh, we receive the benefit of salvation. And I'm not trying to discount that. It's a, that is a great thing. But that is not the primary. That is the secondary. The primary result of salvation is God's glory is revealed. And there's coming a day. We don't know when, but we know it, it could be today. When the sky will open and the King of glory will enter in to judge the living and the dead. And when He does, He will take those sealed in the Spirit into His eternal kingdom. The new heavens and the new earth. Our inheritance. Whatever life is dealing you right now, be assured of that. It is momentary. It is light. It may be affliction, but it's not worth being compared to what you will receive in His kingdom. And if you don't know Him, you're not with Him, when that judgment occurs, you will be assigned to eternal wrath and punishment. And the, the afflictions you currently face and the failures you currently grieve over will only be multiplied. And they will have no end. Because you have no inheritance. Because you have no hope. Because you are cut off from the mercy of God. 
And that mercy is available now. Do not delay. Do not wait. Do not spend your days trying to figure out some other way. He is the only way. The door of salvation is open. Once He closes it and seals it, it can never be opened again. And so I'm saying, come. If you're thirsty, He is the fountain of living water. If you're hungry, He is the bread of life. If you're, if you're desperate and depressed, He is the friend that is closer than a brother. I'm saying, come to Christ. Come before the door closes. Let's pray. Father.